everyone, welcome to the podcast. My name is Blair Sinta, and this is Recording Drums with Blair Sinta. Today, I'm talking to my friend Dan Bailey. Dan is the touring and recording drummer for Father John Misty. He also is the musical director. Uh, Dan is making really awesome sounds in his studio. He also has some instructional courses out, the Bailey Methods 1 through 3, if you're learning about recording. A few more Dan's credits include... Jonathan Wilson, First Aid Kit, One Republic, Christina Aguilera, Sarah Watkins, The Hunger Games, The Handmaid's Tale. So a wide variety of things. Uh, obviously, his credits speak for himself as, or speak for themselves as far as Dan's ability as a musician and a drummer and the information that he's going he's gonna to give us in this awesome podcast. So he's got a new recording studio he built at his house. Uh, during COVID, it's getting great sounds out there. If you are enjoying this podcast, please rate it on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're listening, leave comments. If you're watching on uh, YouTube, share it with friends, any engineers, producers, drummers that are into home recording, and you feel like get good information out of this podcast, spread the word, try to get it to more people. If you are looking for instruction in Groove, my new course called Improve Your Groove is now out through my website. These are concepts on recording drums, just having a great feel, uh, understanding how, how to play on or off the grid, making it feel on top or behind, listening, critical listening, all kinds of concepts like that. So my new course, Improve Your Groove, available through the website Blair Sinta. Dot com. I also have my introduction to recording course there. All right. Without further ado, my conversation with Dan Bailey. Check it out. So tell me about this this rad room that you built. You know, Man. Maybe we'll start here and we'll work backwards. You know? Sure, sure. So my buddy, Matt Walker, who I've known for, he was my, geez, he was my roommate when he was like right out of high school and I was in, in college and stuff, living down in, in San Diego. Um and we kind of split paths for a long time and his dad's a finished carpenter and he kind of went into the trades and stuff, but he's such an engineer and recording nerd. Mm-hmm. That he started, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, he started building rooms for people okay. uh, and doing all the audiology treatment stuff and then learning about that. And so when it was having the commercial space was great, but again, just the, the workflow wise, it's not the best because you just, right. any little thing takes a day to do. Right, so. Right. Yeah. It, so it became like, okay, why am I, and at the top of a pandemic, obviously, like, why am I paying for a commercial space and a mortgage? This is stupid. They need to be the same thing. Right. Pool all my money. So I'm not just throwing away rent on a building. Right. Um, and so I talked to Matt, I was like, Hey, you know, like, I'm going to start looking at houses. What should I be looking for? You know, like, is there a particular like roof framing setup that's better is like, what's the foundations? Do I want like, so this house, we specifically looked at it, you know, good, good area good schools and stuff the area of town we wanted to be in all that yep but it has the house is timber frame so it's like 20 inches off the ground or 24 inches on wood pillars you know wow but the garage is on a slab and so the garage is connected to the house but functionally the garage is not connected to the house it doesn't share a floor amazing so yeah so it was like this was the space and and because of that because the extra 30 inches or whatever it, you step down into the garage so there's a higher ceiling height because you obviously lose so much ceiling height putting in a you know 10 or 12 inch thick wall right you know like you just lose 
uh, uh, there's a foot of ceiling gone, you know, so Right, so right. instead of where a regular garage, you might end up with seven foot four, seven foot five. And here I have basically nine feet after that, which is really beneficial. And but yeah, it's roof flat. Yeah, it is. It is flat. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's a frame above it. And we, we looked at like using it, but in a space, this space is 15 and a half by 18 deep. Okay. And so an a frame in that he was just like, man, it would look pretty, but the, the sound rejection would not perform the same. And I'm I'm in the flight path of a of an airport, so I hear helicopters. If you walk outside, you hear you hear helicopters every now and then. Luckily, they don't penetrate the room. But like, it was one of those like, man, you're just the house is not in a place we can use the A-frame. It's got to be like a self-sealed box in there. So, interesting. Yeah, I just like we talked about how I wanted to perform, and then I just turned him loose on it and kind of didn't get in his way because I know nothing about any of this. Right, right. And and uh, yeah, I couldn't be couldn't be happier with it the size my, my last space was 22 by 22 with 14 foot ceiling so in enormous room right and that's not the sound of, if we were doing sound garden records that's amazing that's right. not what's going on in pop music and hasn't been for a decade right, like right. room mics if they get used yep <laughs> uh you want them to be tighter and a little more present you know so like going to going down to a space less than half the size i i find that this is I can fake anything big I need with verb and with room emulation stuff like that yep. and anything tight. It just immediately sounds better. And since that's 85% of what I record, right. You know, I don't know the last time I like really leaned on a room mic for like the sound. It's been a while. I'm not, I'm not even going to ask you any questions. I'm just going to let you talk because. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. You, I'm like a snowball. You just start me rolling downhill and I'll just go. Yeah. Great. Man. Um, <laughs> That's, you know, it's funny because, you know, I built my, this room in 2009 mm -hmm. and in my tracking side, I've gotten, to me, it's getting like, oh God, it's got to be drier. It's got to be drier. It's got to yeah. be like, as music has changed, I'm like, oh, I need to add more rugs. You know, I got to more baffling. And it's funny. It's at the point, especially now when I listen to sounds that I really like, I'm like, man, I cannot, there's certain things that I'm having to use gating a lot more. Uh, sure. Just because, like, I can't emulate what I what I'm hearing, you know. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's going to be interesting to see what where music goes past because I feel like we've been living with the gush snare drum for so long now, so long. It's going to be in the same way in 2000. I'm sorry, in 1995. If you listen to Phil Collins, you know, right first record, you'd be like, wow, this is so dated. But in 1980, that sounded so good. Yeah. And so I think that that we're going to get to a point where it's like everything having the Tame Paula snare drum is yeah. just going to be like, oh, I remember 2018. Yeah. You know? And so it's going to be interesting to see where things go from from here. I Although it's, it's it's interesting to see artists like Billie Eilish putting out like guitar rock songs. That's exactly what I was going to say. The whole oh, hey. Guess thing and, yeah. and that it's like, okay, there's a hint of rock coming back. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, I feel like the whole Alanis Morissette, like there's yeah. a twinge of that coming back yep. and it's obviously it sounds different, but we're, we are heading back in that direction. And I don't think sonically we've gone back to that, but I feel like the influence is coming back a bit more, you know? Yeah. I think, yeah. It, it, especially as an artist like Billie Eilish, I imagine doing a song like she just put out, I think today, um, 
I imagine in that control room, they're like listening to Jagged Little Pill going like, how do we get this vibe on our track? How do we get this performance? Yeah, I think that the, all those records, the best of that mid late 90s stuff is about to come back for sure. Yeah, today I, it's just taken a couple more years than I thought. But right, right, right. When we finish today, I'm recording with a uh, young artist named Lizzie McAlpine, who's an incredible songwriter. And it's we're going down the same path because I did a record yeah. for her two years ago and it was, you know, just dry and super organic, but like, you know, kind of grainy and yeah, totally. But this is not that at all. It's like a whole different direction. You know, it's what we're talking about. Well, and I think it, it has I, I'm so aware of my age at this point. And I, I don't mean that in a total ne negative. I'm entering my 40s. I feel great about it. I've never felt better. My career has never been in a better spot. Would not go back to 20 for any amount of money in the world. That said, I'm starting to realize these young artists are half my age. And so when I go like, oh yeah, Soundgarden, super unknown because I was 14 when that came out or whatever, they're like discovering it now. And th that's actually fun. It's like, oh, you like that? You need to listen to Smashing Pumpkins Adore. You need to listen to REM. You need, you know, just like trying to be the older brother and like shove people down to like listen, find the coolest version of the thing they're chasing. But I, it's, yeah, it's, I, so, it's so fun to play that role because I'm the oldest sibling. I never had, yeah, yeah, it, like I never had the older, the older brother or whatever give me the cool stuff, you know? Right. So, yeah, I got 10 years on you. So, uh, for me, Super Unknown was, was my last year of college. Yeah. And, um, well, that wouldn't totally add up with what you just said, but you know what I mean? Uh, but to me, that record was incredibly influential. Yeah. And what's amazing to me is when I go back and listen to those drum sounds, they are not what I perceive them to be at that time. I go back and like, oh my God, they are so incredibly roomy. They're they're actually kind of small. They're tucked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know the guitars are the massive thing on that record. It's it's a really interesting study in sound. It's I, I was listening to uh, to Pearl Jam ten the other day. Just go like, oh, I haven't listened to this in forever. And it's like, oh, they're still in the hairband era. There's yeah. gated verbs. It, it sounds like a like a you know Van Halen record from '85. The drums, you know, drums wise, it's like oh, yeah, oh, okay. I I didn't realize they hadn't. It's like verses where it's like oh, everyone heard their Nirvana record and went like dry drums, room drums. <laughs> but at the time that that Pearl Jam record sounded a bit organic and I don't want to say trashy, but it sounded more but organic comparison. than we were used to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. totally. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I, you know, it's, it's so funny to go back and, and look at how much of this stuff is driven by the technology at the time. Like a Linkin Park record sounded like that because Pro Tools like just became the standard. Mm -hmm. So that's a very digital, perfect edited record because you finally could do that. You know, like, I, I think that there's, we, we like to think about these people as making, you know, engineers back in the day, making all these artistic choices. It's like, no, they were working on that Peter Gabriel record and they fed like the new Yamaha U U reverb unit came out. So they were just using it on everything because it was fun. Right. That's how they were. They approach it the same way we do, you know, like they weren't, they weren't thinking down the road. They're like, we got this new toy. Let's throw it on the drum. See what happens. You know, you can trace that back to the Beatles. You know, they were yeah. getting Rickenbacker bass and they're like, oh, wow. <laughs> and and the funny thing is to especially you know 15 you know almost 20 years ago now when vintage was really becoming cool mm -hmm. um everybody was all about you know i gotta have vintage this vintage that but you know and i would look back and i would think like 
you know, at that time, 20 years ago, I would, I'd be like, man, why did, you know, so-and-so ever go away from playing a, a strat or like a, you know, a cool P base or whatever, you yeah. know, like all these guys played P bases, but then they started playing bases with active pickups and blah, blah, blah. But they're just trying to stay, stay with it sonically. You know what I mean? That's what was, and that, well, that's what was cool. So it was, it's kind of ironic to look back and go like, you know, we, you know, people of like my generation started to reject new things, you know, like the old thing yeah. is cool. Yeah. Oh, so I remember, I mean, I remember in the early days of eBay where like, Neve 1081s were like 500 a channel because everyone was going digital. Yeah. I mean, there was like a, a second where that dipped, like you could get P bases for a six, 800 bucks. Yeah. Like a early seventies or something yeah. like all the, you know, that's the days of the $500 Ludwig kit. Like you could, you could like trip over $500 super classics on, on like penny saver. I know. Even, and I, I kick myself, even though I didn't think about it at the time, I kick myself when I remember going into like a guitar center or whatever and looking at a, a, a 65 Ludwig kit and it was 400 bucks. Yeah. And oh. not grabbing all of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but, then, but then remembering I was 20 and I did not have the means to grab any of them, let alone all of them. And, and it wasn't cool. Like you wouldn't have been caught dead. Yeah. You wouldn't show up at a club with that thing. You'd be no, like, no, no, no. You, you had to, you had to have a DW collectors or a pro masters. Yeah. That's just how it was. Yeah. And for me, it was like, oh, that was the kit my junior high band room had. Yes. It was a total piece of crap. The Ludwigs, you know what I mean? Oh, but, totally. Yeah. Just, just not maintained at all. Yeah, bad memories. Just broken. Just twenty-five-year-old <laughs> heads. Right, right. Whereas, you know, here's an interesting thing: is also it's like for me, dr just drum-wise, like um, I've been at DW endorser for a long time, but yeah. I really stayed with playing vintage drums in the studio until like just a few years ago, and I brought my jazz series kit into my room. And I was like, oh, my God, this thing sounds amazing. And it's doing something that my vintage drums are not doing. Yeah. That I'm appreciating more now. So there's like a mindset shift that I've had between still wanting vintage for certain things, but also, you know, even though the jazz series are not the most modern sounding drums, there is a tonal aspect to it that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, vintage Gretsch or vintage Ludwig or Slingerland don't do. It's yeah. I, I mean, when there have been times I've, I've, I've had a handful of drum endorsements because they serve me a purpose for a time that I change a gig and, or, or the company discontinues a series I was using. And it's like, well, that you discontinue the thing I like. So, you know, whatever, yep. but I find the same thing with, man, I've been with, with Canopus for a year and DW honestly was the one of the only other companies I thought about, you know, kicking the tires on because they, they can make you, like DW is capable of making most anything you can think of. You right. like, Hey, I want like a Rogers type shell with a 1.6 hoop. They're yeah. like, yeah, we can totally, that's no problem. You know, like th those jazz series drums are unbelievable. Yeah. And and yeah. to me, like every bit as good as a, as a USA custom that's coming off the line right now. Mm -hmm. And there, as I've, man, as I get older the thing about modern drums, there's just like a clarity mm -hmm. that vintage drums don't have. Um, and I, I think, I, I have a, a 60s Gretsch and a 60s Camco, and that's the only things I've kept. Uh, you know, Gretsch in small sizes, Camco in 22, 13, 16, like God intended. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and it's it's one of those, like, I leave those with, I have the oldest coded ambassadors on both kits, right. just like I will never rehead them. Because if I want something pretty, I'm going to get something really pretty. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I, I let, I'm just letting the vintage drums be the best version of that, like, and that's for when I want to point three mics at something and have it sound like the thing, you know, that we all want it to sound like. 
but like i was trying to think the other day i don't think i've used a vintage kit in like 10 months because the modern drums now like dw stuff certainly canopus that the, they make a, a ludwig and a gretsch clone that's so good it's scary mm-hmm. it just i mean the thomas star stuff is so good uh there's just so many good drums being made right now and it's just like oh so i can get all of the tuning capabilities and clarity and cleanliness of sound, but still have some vibe, like sign me up. That's that's great. Because it, it used to be that live, like, live drums eats vintage drums for breakfast. Right, like if right. you try to play a festival stage with, I tried to take my Camco on the road with Misty, it is not happening. I can't hear them and I'm on, I'm like tapping the mics on in-ears going like, I can't hear this floor tom, why is that? Right. They just don't produce any volume. Right. And there's, so there was always like for me i was always new drums live vintage drums recording and anymore it's just like i found stuff that i really like yep. and it's just the utility of it's just good every time it never has a bad day because right. you know an old kit you'll walk in you would have done two tracks the day before the next morning and the, the toms sound like trash and there's nothing you can do yeah, just the, they're having a bad day like a lug, lug slipped and everything you know yeah. and then you put them away and get them back out next time and they sound amazing and you've done nothing right. you know it's just yeah. like what in the world they just have too much attitude problems for me sometimes it, <laughs> we might as well sing the praises of istanbul agap at while we're on oh, well, that goes without because yeah. what they're you know not to whatever we're both endorsers so we'll yeah. just say hey paid advertisement uh the yeah. that, like the exist symbols like like i have some of those power uh exist bright yeah. brilliant man yep. those incredible rock symbols and i pull them out twice a year you know yeah. but they're that but it's automatic you need that thing automatic i mean for me i don't know what and not to speak hard on uh, harm on any other symbol company i don't know what happened when people forgot how to make symbols because like i grew up playing 50s and 60s zildjans and the only thing that sound anywhere near that are agop traditionals like that and that's what just i i immediately played those and was like oh that's it for me and it's been 14 years and i will never play another symbol yeah like i just couldn't be there's it's like it's like when your marriage is in a good place like i'm not even other women don't even exist to me like i haven't played I, I have a couple of old zildjans that when i really need like a 1940s a zildjan set of hi-hats that's what they're for but for everything else i mean it's it's rare it's just not some accumulation of traditionals in my bag you know it's they just do the thing there we go we, we've 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 put our plug for our next year of endorsement in it so. <laughs> Thank you, um, Scott. <laughs> yeah. So let me, uh, so I'll go back to my normal first question for most people. When did you start recording and how did you get into recording yourself? I uh, started recording. Um, I was lucky enough to have a friend in high school who was interning at like a little local studio out in Redlands, California. Okay. And so he would start like, hey, you know, we need a drummer for this thing or like, hey, I'm producing this song for this artist, you know, another friend or something. And so they had a they had a Trident Series 70 console, which is super cool to have in a in a little project studio, uh, and a, a little bit of outboard, and uh, um, I think they had a like an eight track tape machine, and then also you know a Pro Tools rig and stuff. But we would you know record drums to tape, dump at the Pro Tools, all that. Um, so yeah, just got you know, and from that one person heard that I played on something else, played on something for somebody else, played live with them, met somebody, you know, that's how how it goes. Right. Um, and then recording myself, like 2008 or nine, I, you know, I'd, I'd owned a, an interface, you know, kind of the whole time, but it just sat in my closet. I didn't really use it. 
Sure. And like 2008 or nine, I just like had some downtime and started to like set up in the garage and see what happened. And, and it, then it turned into like, Hey man, uh, you know, people who would hire me for regular, regular stuff would just be like, Hey, I just need like a drum loop for that third verse. Can you knock me something out like that? Something low stakes, you know, right. and then it just turned into, you know, and you start that you go on the road, you go to music stores, you start accumulating gear, you have a couple dollars cause you're on tour a lot and you start to like compile. Um, and then, yeah, it, it, I, I would say sometime around like 2015 or 16, it transitioned to be the thing I do most. Mm-hmm. Like it took me, it took me a solid 10 years of, of messing around before it became like my main style of recording. I, w- I was for sure working with other engineers, but that's the best part about that is you get to look over good engineer shoulders for ever and just like be a fly on the wall and be like, Hey, why are you doing that? Oh, is that your usual mic placement? Or are you trying to get something else? You know, like you can ask all the dumb questions you want and, did you have a kind of a point person, like a good friend or a particular? Yeah, I, yeah, and I still have a, I still have a couple for sure, a couple of mix engineer buddies specifically that like, especially early on when I was like, ha, you know, had less of an idea of what phase is. Not that any of us have a full understanding of it, but it was one of those like, hey, can I send, can I send you stems real quick? And like, am I like doing this even half right, mm-hmm. or is like my snare out of phase and I just don't hear it, you know, or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, man, my, my specifically my buddy Christian down at Signature Sound down in San Diego has been such a source. Okay. For that kind of thing, just just like, hey, man, does this sound like drums? <laughs> Am I doing this right? If I turn this in, as you as a mix engineer, could you make this something? You know, like, yep. and so because early on, it's just having the confidence that what you're doing is going to sound like a finished product at the end. And like knowing what it needs to sound like when you hand it off in order to get to that point, you know? Yeah, like knowing what a natural drum sound is, just off mics, no EQ, no compression. Yeah. Like, is this, am I doing this right? Useful, yeah. Is, is, are we going to be able to use this for yeah. sure? Yeah, yeah. Especially before you get into EQ. I mean, because that, I feel like that's probably the biggest learning curve I hear from, from different uh, recording drummers is that they're afraid to EQ too much. Totally. I, I only recently started like printing and we're talking like in the last two years started printing compression mm-hmm. and started using more outboard compression because I I just had too many times where I had what I knew was like V take mm-hmm. and there was something engineering wrong about it. And so I just like I was all about in the I would hit like a good preamp and then all in the box after that just so I can. Sure. You know, you don't paint yourself in the corner, you know, um, but at some point you start to go like, man, yeah, they could, you know, a raw kick in mic, they'll be able to do whatever they need with that. But like, they're going to be stoked when they when they drop in the stems, and it sounds like drums already. And they're like, Oh, I don't have to like do cleanup, I can start doing my stuff, you know, right. I think that that's kind of the magic point of I don't ever want to overcook to where they can't do their thing when they get the files. But yeah, having something that sounds like something. (laughs) I also feel like there maybe there's a certain point where I'm sure that you're at where you're getting called because they know that you can do this stuff. You're not, you're not going to overcook at this point. They, they want me to do what I do. Yeah. Very, very much so. And that becomes, you know, that's the story of being a contract musician anyway, is like at some point you stop being a drummer and you're the drummer, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, Oh, we don't want a drummer to come in and play. We want Dan or Blair because they do this thing really well. You know, like we want them to come in and do their thing. And if we want something else, we're going to get somebody else. And that's great. You know, like, I think there's some of that understanding of like 
you know, it goes along with finding your voice on the instrument and all that. You gotta, you gotta figure out like, what do I do best? What do I need to work on? Uh, and I, yeah, I think that that, with that comes confidence. And with that, you start to like, have more of your own sound and people come to you for that and all that, you know? Right. And it's a double-sided coin in this case, because not only do you have to have the playing side and people want what you're going to play and the musical choices you're going to make, but they know that the sounds that are coming are, I mean, I think I'm going to speak in your case, like not just raw sounds, but like, you know, the proper yeah. compressed mic or the right choice of ribbon mics or, or whatever room mic placement, blah, blah, blah. So you're yeah. like, you're like doubling up on that style, you know? At this yeah, point. totally. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it is, it's such a bizarre thing to get thrown into. And I get why it's super intimidating for, for young folks starting out because it's like, Oh, I have to be on this level as a player and this level as an engineer. And there's and no fast track to that. I mean, there, yeah, are, there are no linear growth into those, you know, it's just like you get better by messing up a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and just studying. So what was your, what do you think was, um, how was, how did you go about going like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure out how to use compression and get the gushy snare or this, the, the compressed room. Was there, were you emulating recordings or was it just talking to engineers? What was your process? I, yeah, kind of all of the above, but I, I would say that mostly it was just so much trial and error. There was a time in my life I was recording drums for four, five, six hours a day with nothing else going on. If I wasn't on the road, I came into my shop and I recorded five hours a day. Mm -hmm. And like, even if I didn't have something to play on, I'm just like, I'm going to try to get this and then just mess with it. Put on a podcast while I'm setting microphones up, you know, like, and then so many people run from the presets on plugins like those are there for a reason i've seen every i've seen you know how many first name basis mix engineers go to like a drum bus and open up like on their 2500 plugin and open up like mix bus compressor and then work off of that you know like i i think people assume that like having any kind of starting point is somehow like makes your engineering less valuable or something especially when you're learning it's like what does drum group one preset on a plugin sound like? You know, like what is two, what is three, what is four? And then like, if, what if I change the input gain? What if I change the amount of reduction? You know, like what if I change the, the speeds of the, the attack and release? You know, you just like kind of listen with your ears and go like, oh, I see what it's doing. Okay, you know, and you just, I just did it enough where I kind of got a grasp of it between that and, and watching engineers who know what they're doing. What's your favorite preset that you're working off of or, or plug-in slash preset? Oh man, I you know what I I bet the single plugin I've used the most is the stupid Waves API 2500 compressor. Because that thing sounds so stinking good. It takes no brain power of your computer to run. So it's it's not gonna bog down if you're running on a computer that's kind of prosumer and you're starting out. Mm -hmm. Um and it just has great like it's got some presets for mastering that are incredible. So that I'll run on like a full mix bus at the at the stereo bus just so i can like emulate what it's going to be like mastered so i know that have i compressed the room mics too much because they're gonna get compressed again at mastering like and if they turn into like slodge go <laughs> like oh okay i've gone too hard yep you know it i, I yeah i would say that 2500 and it's always like 30 bucks or 40 bucks it's always like a cheap plug-in i just stuff like that i i use the uh the ships the waves ships 1073 Mm -hmm. eq preamp i've used that for yeah like a decade yeah because mm -hmm. this is all stuff i had pre-uad being a system you could buy you know uh but yeah i i just think it's one of those just kind of 
put a mic up and then open a plug-in and like noodle around and figure out what's cool. You know, you'll, you'll stumble on some stuff. I think you made a good point too of like uh, checking out to see what things are going to be like when they're quote unquote mastered or emulating a master. And because often like when you bounce something down, even though you think your mix, your drum mix is really good. When you hear it as a two track, you're like, whoa. Yeah, yeah, somebody's poking out or something. Yeah, yeah like that's not what I'm hearing when I do that. So you have to go back and correct from that. Yeah, and, totally. You know, and for me, a lot of it was just like getting in the car and like, wow, my outside kick mic is just blowing my back window out. It sounds <laughs> so awesome in my room. Yep. It's unlistenable in my car, you know, and like getting over that hump of learning like, dude, you cannot have this mic at Unity. It has to be like ducked minus 15 you know, yeah, well, and, your mic pre down, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and we're all listening, you know, when you're recording, you're usually listening on either better headphones than any, you know, regular folk folk has like, you know, these Sennheisers, those buyers are, are not consumer headphones. Right. You know, so it's like, and then we're, or you're listening on monitors, which no one has no normal person who's going to buy this record and listen to it has. So you're listening to something in the best possible light. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Print a mix and go listen in your car or go, or go listen on iPod headphones. Like that, God, that's showing my age, iPod headphones. But yeah, like go listen on, in the way that someone's actually going to listen to it. Have a pair of like, you know, I fly a lot. So I have a pair of like Beats headphones, you know, like that's what most people listen to mixes on. You know, so it's like, what does it actually sound like how it's going to be received later, you know? A lot of my tone getting these days is is back to my NS10s and making sure that my kick drum has punch and low end through those with no sub, nothing. Just right. To, okay, is it translating in that? Because if I listen to this on a phone or somebody listens to this final product and let's say nobody actually touches my drums and it's just whatever, right. I want that I want that thing to thump through the phone. Right. Which well, is, and if you can if you can make something sound good. Yeah. If you can make something sound good on NS10s, it's going to sound good. Yeah, yeah. That's why they're great. Even though it never sounds good on NS10s, but you're just no. like, okay, is it at least doing what? Yeah. Know, something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I heard one time the NS10s more or less like mimic the average car radio. Like, so that that was the idea of like, that's kind of the quality. It's not, they are cheap. They always were cheap monitors. The fact that they're like four figures to get a pair now is hilarious to me. Are they uh, oh yeah, when you find pairs, twelve hundred a grand. That's totally normal now. When when they were like three hundred for two back, in the, you know, way back in the day. Right. Yeah, it's it's well that and they're just omnipresent. They're at every studio in the world. Right. And yeah, they're they're they not uh, they're not going to help you out at all. <laughs> stuff yeah. stuff does not want to sound good on NS tens. <laughs> uh, so tell me about the like some of the favorite things about your room like your this new room so if if people don't know dan especially on instagram he's constant you're constantly teaching drum recording uh I, i'm always looking at your instagram going like i should probably get more detailed with how i'm talking about like setups and everything because <laughs> you're so good at that but you really like describe different parts of your room and how you're using them what are the what are the what are the some of the great things about this room that you've built that you've discovered man that it's about it's about the perfect size for it's it's the size of like a, a medium sized drum booth at a studio. So like it's the perfect size for most things. And I've got a couple, you know, gobos that I can tighten up the room if I want like a booth booth, if I want like a vocal booth. 
and then you know through trickery you can you can make it bigger but i would say that like i really think i stumbled upon like kind of the the right size space for how it is i play the drums and i think that that's so much of it like me or you or talking to Soundgarden, like matt cameron don't sound the same you know if we played the same kid in the same room and i think there is something to like if you're a dude who just kind of if you're John Theodore and you're an incredible rock drummer, just like one of the best rock drummers we've ever seen, your sound is just this big full sound and a small room made like put the handcuffs on you. Like you almost need a bigger space in order to, you know, the, the you need a bigger space that so that the kit can fill it up, you know, and, and sound right and not sound like it's choking itself. Right. Um, yeah, I would say that the, the room that for me, the, the coolest part has just been I've happened on the room that sa that responds correctly to my playing. My last space was way too big. And so I was having all these issues with, like, you just can't make a big space small. So having having a medium space that just kind of does what I want it to do from the drop, it has been so great. And just, let alone the, the dimensions, but I think that the treatment on the room is as such where there's just, Every, it's just pleasant sounding. If you talk in here, it's pleasant sounding. If you like hear a drum kit, it's pleasant sounding. There's no like 300 hertz honk on the snare that's just because the room is around it, you know? Um, yeah, I, and, and just having a space that's yours, a yeah. space that I know like it's not up to somebody whether or not I'm gonna have the lease on the building coming up, mm -hmm. you know, like just being able to put down roots and be like, I plan to record here the next 20 years right. and this is gonna be great. And, um, that, I yeah, think you made a really interesting point. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that, like finding the right room for you. Yeah. What is it you do most often and, and best? And then kind of building around that, you know, and having, and if you're having a place built, having a, a designer contractor who understands that, you know, would is very beneficial. But I think you also mean that as a player, not just, yeah, no, I totally. mean, you're speaking of as a player and an engineer, but I think as if you're talking like as a player too, um, you know, there are going to be some people that's just over a power a room because that's how they play. You know, mm -hmm. there are guys that are going to hit symbols at a certain velocity because that's how they play. You know what totally. I mean? And in some rooms, that's going to just be challenging in a bigger room. That's going to be helpful, you know, well, and, and, and at some point in a, in a rear big room, it's going to sound incredible in a way that I don't, cause I just plain don't hit hard enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's and it's funny too. Well, you know that made me it triggered like certain rooms in LA that I love playing mm -hmm. in, like uh, Sunset Sound Room One or Three, uh, yeah. Henson Room B. Although that's a little bigger because of the ceiling, but it's still smaller. And uh, was the third? Oh, East West. Yeah, it's like those are medium, medium to uh, they're not small rooms. They're medium sized rooms. Yeah, you know. And like, those are just awesome rooms to be in. Yeah. And it's just, you know, we all, we've all had that experience of you just set up in whatever space could be a venue, could be a studio, whatever. And you just like, wow, it sounds incredible. In here. Mm -hmm. And just, it's for whatever reason, all the, the drums are in the right spot. You're playing them correctly. Yeah. There's, there's something to be said about certain people fit in certain spaces better than others for sure. So when you, when you first played in your new room, did you have that feeling? You're like, oh yeah. This is oh, yeah, before it had any stuff, even before it had much of the treatment, like when the, the space was built, but there's now he's working on the inside. Mm -hmm. I brought a, a kick and a snare in here and it's like, oh, yeah, no, it sounds sounds like drums. 
because you know any i always have the experience that say i i step away from either recording to do a date or just take time off say i don't record for like a week mm -hmm. and i come back i always have the experience because i'm i'm a i'm a pessimist that like oh this sounds way better than i remember it sounding like so that it's it's so much of the like there was so much uh, hesitancy about my space because i'm like well i hope it sounds good because i'm invested you know like time and money and all this and so like the relief of of playing in here and like oh okay it sounds like drums great yeah, <laughs> was was very good but yeah i think yeah I, I think just people have different spaces they excel in you know and and i think knowing that about yourself and of course we should be able to tailor our playing like if we're playing a rock thing we're not going to hit like if we're playing a singer songwriter thing you know those are two different gears but like thinking about you know when you're when you're going into the planning stages of a space what do you do most often what's the best thing you do and just focus on that and tailor the space to do the best version of that thing did you find like the character of some of your gear changed for you mentally in a new space like you're like oh i used this set of microphones to do this but now i think they're better suited to do something else yeah i had my i had my coals were always my overheads uh, i had you know a pair of 4038s and you know i just love the ribbon overhead thing and in here they're too dark and coals tend to be dark anyway, but they're really dark in here. And of course, the other thing they're amazing at is rooms. I mean, it's the, my favorite room mic too. So like, I yeah, the, in here, as soon as I got in here, I put them up and they're just like, wow, they are very uninspiring. And that's even going through like API 312s, a pretty bright, fast preamp, you know, like they're just like, oh, they're kind of muddy and I have to add so much EQ to make them sound normal and just switching them to rooms and going to like either a FET condenser or, or pencil condensers overheads it was like oh there it is just immediately that's what i wanted it to be and i think it's just the smaller space with higher ceilings the coals maybe has more time to gather a bunch of information and cooler stuff to happen in here a figure eight microphone in a nine foot ceiling just was not that cool i think maybe that was some of it so does that mean your coals are basically sitting in their case more or less no they're they're my they're my stereo rooms most times okay. yeah okay yeah. <laughs> You figured, oh no you can't let them sit that'd be that's sacrilege <laughs> that's what i it's what it sounded like you were saying man i had to clarify no no i just had to repurpose them a little bit <laughs> um yeah it's funny i i uh especially the last um i don't know six to eight months i've been doing that a lot um because i checked out a few different you know my companies and things like that and got some demos and things like that and i really started to like you know i pride myself on moving my mics around for different configurations for for sound right but yeah. the overall like basic setup i've really messed with that a lot in the past six to eight months just to be like okay this is this is like my overall i can do a lot with these you know mm -hmm. um and it's amazing when you really get into in fact i was doing something yesterday just and i was like oh i like this mic in this position it's a little darker and it's a little helping me control a little more you know, mm -hmm. my room is so small and I really have to like keep things not too bright, you know? Sure. Yeah. And there are some mics that I think, okay, this would be great for that, but they basically sit on the shelf until yeah. that very rare time where I need that, you know? Well, I, I think that that some of that comes with a little experience and maturity too. I think it's so easy to like get a piece of gear and like, I have to use it on everything. I have this new piece of gear. It's like, if something's not right, 
you know, I, if I had a dollar for every time I've like gotten a new snare drum and taken it to the next session and like, oh, I'm going to make sure this snare drum makes one of these tracks, just got, I want to hear it. And then it just doesn't, it's not right for the track for whatever reason, you know, it's just like, and younger me would be bummed out and, you know, eh, it's time will come, you know, we'll just get it next time. <laughs> yeah. And, and also like, sometimes you get that thing, you're like, how did I live without this? Oh yeah. All of a sudden it's like, well, how, yeah. How was I, how was I getting by without this thing? That's going to be like a bedrock for me now, you know? Yeah. So what, what are, what are some kind of like essential like pieces of gear that you're like, Oh my God, this is like the thing. Man. The first time I like plugged in a 1073 and ran my kick, my, my kick in into it. It's like, Oh, that's the bass drum sound for me. That's like, there's, there's a reason you go to studios and you see the same circuit over and over and over and over is because that's just, you know, it's like a, like a Ludwig superphonic, right? Mm -hmm. Is a, is a superphonic the best sounding snare drum? No, like objectively not, but has, have we been so ingrained for 75 years of that's what a snare drum sounds like that we, we just love that thing. You know, it's like an SM 57 isn't the best dynamic mic, right. but it, that's the sound, you know, uh, I, I think that there's, yeah, the first time when I got my hands on like a pair of 1073s and a pair of like API 312s, I was like, oh, I get why everybody has these. Because yeah. it's just immediate like, oh, this sounds great. Yep. You know, yep. without yep. without sounding overdone, it's just like, oh, it's it sounds like the best version of that drum with that mic on it. You know? How about like oddball stuff, like whether a gear or piece of gear or mic or something that, that does something special that you're like, aha. I'm so into old 80s Orban EQs. I have four of them now, <laughs> so I keep trying to find them for nothing. I have the stereo. I have the... Uh, yeah, the 622B or something like that. I have the 674A. 674A, yeah. They're, man, they're... They, they have their own thing. You can still get them for cheap. I, like, I've been talking about them too much, so at some point they won't be that cheap because <laughs> they start showing up. Um, but you can get them for... Geez, you still find them for four or 500 bucks for the stereo EQ, yeah. and they're... They're built like tanks. They have a cool, even like flat, they have a cool sound. Yeah. And then just that every band is so sweepable. You can just get super surgical, like to the point where there's like depth and narrowness gauge and and you can sweep from like 60 Hertz to like 16 K. Yeah. It's just yeah. like the full spectrum on every, every uh, graph. You know, it's yeah. Yeah. Th those to me are, I, I just got one of their uh, stereo compressors for like 200 bucks that like they make this little optical compressor I've got to mess with. I got to put it in the chain, but yeah, that, that, that 80s Orban stuff is just so cool and so cheap and has just such a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, um, do you have a DBX 164? I have the, uh, what the 1066. Okay. I don't, I don't is, know that one, but get me, I don't know DBX stuff much. The but, 164 just has a knob, a sweep knob. It's all it does. It's stereo. Oh, and it's just like, it does, it does the blow up thing just so well. Like when I want to blow something up, I just, yeah. you know, that thing and, and other things, not so much. It's just like, nah, I don't, yeah. you know, I would never put just like a kick through that. It would be like, no, it would just wouldn't be the right thing at all. You know. Yeah, that that the 1066 I have is very much the same. Where it's like, for that thing, if you want to get really aggressive, incredible at it. And if there's there is no subtlety, it is like, it's like the compressor is fast and it hits hard, or you don't want it. You know? Right. But that's but that's the DBX thing. That's great. Right. Are you, so are you finding in general? You kind of touched on this with your coals. Are you finding in general in your room that ribbon mics are too dark? In an overhead position, yeah. 
Okay. Um, for rooms, I tend to roll off a, you know, a significant amount of high end on room mics anyway. Just that's, I, I always want my, my room mics are pretty mid-rangey because I want my kick, my low end to happen at the drums and be immediate and present. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And I want my definition from like overheads to be at the drums. Mm -hmm. I don't need ride definition in my room. Right. So I'm going to turn down, you know, if it's a 10K little high shelf, I'm going to back that down a little bit mm -hmm. just to roll off the extreme top. So in in that way, the Coles kind of does that for me anyway. Yeah, I... I I find that if you try to make every mic full range, it just turns into just just sounds like mess. Just there's just too much happening. I don't think that's the point of many yeah. mics in the kit. <laughs> so also, are you finding with your nine foot ceiling? Because my my ceiling goes like this in my okay. room. So uh, one thing I struggle with with my overhead is that even in even in a cardioid uh, pattern, mm -hmm. I get too much room in there. When and that you know that's one of those things. So are you finding that in do you, first of all, do you use your overheads in figure eight? Uh, no, I use, I've been using either pencil condensers or FET in cardioid. Yeah, pretty okay. directional. But also if uh, right. I've got these in ginormous traps over the center of the room exactly. that more or less make the room function like it doesn't have a ceiling. They're so absorbent and they take up at least 45% of the, the space in the middle of the room. Wow. It's, or, it's more or less divided in thirds and the middle third has a five has a pair of five foot by eight foot traps so yeah as far as i don't hear anything coming back off the ceiling ever it's it's very very absorbent wow that's cool because i think that was that was matt's thought of like if we can't get the cool inspiring ceiling shape let's just make it not be a problem ever and make it really you know utilitarian i love that yep yep yeah it's, you know what are you actually going to use a room for if i was going to take instagram pictures I would have a, a prettier looking room. It would be more, it'd be beams. I would have kept the window to the outside, you know, like, but if we're talking about, I'm just trying to come in here and bang out tracks as fast as I can at the highest level I can. I'm, I'm you know, right. right it's nice right. to have a room that's not fighting you the whole time. So what's your, what's your favorite way to fake big, big drums, big room sound? Either uh, I, my, my coals, you know, it's not as far back as I can get them, maybe six, eight feet. Uh, X, Y, usually pointed at the ground, not, like not directionally at the kit, because I find that that you get so much kick drum in your rooms if they're only six or eight feet out. Yeah. And that I want, I'm not looking for that 5k attack of the kick. I want like, I want the it to go around the room and come back, you know, yeah, it's a room sound, right? Yeah, it's a room sound. So <laughs> like, yeah, usually pointed at the floor almost always. And either UAD's Lexicon 224 reverb is so good. Uh, I mean, the ocean ways I've, I've been in, in, in United's B room so much, uh, working with on Misty records as his favorite room. And that room sounds like that when you have the, the plugin <laughs> enabled and you just have these on and you're talking, it's like, oh, I'm in United. It's, it's unreal. So that's, that's such a cheat code. Yeah. And then, yeah, UAD's pure plate is really good too. Okay. And then Valhalla, uh, Vintage Verve's room settings are that just sounds so stinking good. I love that. And don't even and don't even sound like a reverb at all. It sounds like a room. It's right. it's great. Right. But uh, any more like and the thing is of having a small room you can control and then you add the size, you have so much more ability to to change what's happening than if you just have a giant space. 
it's going to be there whether you're trying to get that or not. <laughs> so I find having like room mics that sound good tighter and then I'm going to add size to them. I get so much more control and the ability to, you know, like I can always print files without them too and they can do their thing. And that, you know, that, that, that was one of my biggest revelations of recording myself is like, you know, maybe there was like an eighties or nineties, uh, kind of what's the word i'm looking for there was just a thing in my brain it's like okay the bigger the room the better the drums are you know i'm like okay well i'm gonna have a small home studio i'll figure it out and now to me it's like the tighter it can be the more control everything is and then i can go from there totally i think it's part of the age that we live in with all these plugins and the power of of, of room simulation and things like that but like just the idea of like this massive thing you know, of course it's warranted for very certain things, but like we said, nine times out of 10, that is not the thing. And, and you just can't undo it. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's cooked. It's built into that space, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and, and yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, in the era when pop records sound like Tom Petty, you know, wildflowers or something like that was, that's the sound, but that's not, that hasn't been anything top 40 in so long now that it just that's not what people are doing yeah and and you know i mean just to just to go there like you cannot emulate that you just can't emulate that because you that's a very special room with a special board and the musicians a, a dumb mic catalog yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just every piece of gear on earth the best engineers yeah that's exactly that's, but there's a reason those records sound expensive because they were very expensive <laughs> well, not only that. Well, that's funny though too, because that record did not sound expensive when it came out. When it came out, right? It was like, oh, listen, how, listen how raw it is. It's like, yeah, well, they didn't just pump like Yamaha verb on every channel. It's it's great. I do remember explicitly hearing that record the first time. My my buddy Jason Farr played that record for me. I was still in college, and I was. He's like, you got to check this out, and uh, you know, and this is way before I was thinking about drum sounds so much right but i remember yeah. i remember the kick drum sound hearing that on that record and just being like wow man like there's somehow it was registering in my brain without thinking like oh well you know what was that room or what was that mic or anything yeah yeah none of that it was just like when when you hear you don't know how it feels to be me yep. and that doo, doo, God, man there's an immediacy to that tone that just like I inside you I've, I've always loved how much that bass drum sounds like a pedal up against like a garage door or something, you know, it just, it almost doesn't sound like a drum. You can tell it's a big, it's like a 24 mm -hmm. and very dead mm -hmm. and it's just moving a ton of air and it's just like, but yeah, it coming from a place where either records at the time didn't have low end because mm -hmm. I don't know why every, every record from the eighties is high past at like 200 Hertz, but it is, right. but also like the just, that was one of the first times I remembered like, Oh, the kick is like hitting as hard as the snare in the same way, like in the same frequency range. Mm -hmm. Like the snare has all that three and five case, you know, crunch. And so does the kick. And it's so freaking cool. It's interesting because obviously part of that is Ferroni, right? Like yeah. it's his groove. It's his sound. Yeah. But if we could go back and like hear certain drummers from earlier eras, like in a recording like that, like I wonder yeah. if we could hear Clyde Stubblefield or something recorded that way what that would be like yeah all those all the dudes before the like multi-mic era would be super fascinating yeah. like or even like i would love to hear 
I would love to hear Phil Collins without the Phil Collins aesthetic on him because he is so identified with that drum sound and he's such an unbelievable player. It's like, man, I would love to hear Phil Collins treated like he's Matt Chamberlain on a session once. Just like, can we throw up a couple RCA ribbons and just let him play and see what happens? Because you know he sounds incredible. You know, it would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in this perfect world where we have a infinite budget and Phil would answer our emails, yeah. <laughs> but it, hey, I just, hey, Phil, will you come over to my home studio so I can... Yeah, I just, I just need to hear what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah. buy you lunch. <laughs> That's really funny. You know, I mean, the, but if you listen to Mama or sorry, Genesis, the record entitled Genesis with Mama, and he plays like the uh, like the, the electronic toms, like the Simmons on there and super dry snares. There, you know, you can get some of that vibe. And the, the thing I've noticed about it is like when he's doing like the, the kind of Phil Collins sound thing, right? Hitting hard, like all this stuff on Abacab, the pocket is just like, insane right Nailed to the floor yeah it just it doesn't move at all yeah but if, but if you listen to something like uh is it i'm just spacing on the title under the sea what's the t what's the tune um by the sea something like it by the sea where he's playing that it's and he's playing a little more ghost notes it's looser i man i i am of the opinion that like I'm, i i i, I may yeah. have to cut this out because i'm literally critiquing I, Phil Collins on record, you know, but like, you know. No, but that's, but you're saying he's able to do different things. He's not right. locked into being Phil Col the Phil Collins we know from In the Air Tonight. Yeah. He can do other stuff. Yeah, but, I, but it's I, solid. I mean, the playing is super solid, but it's, there's, there's a little as Yeah. 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 I, I, I mean, I'm of the opinion that if he was, if he was just a drummer, didn't put out a solo record, you know, in 1980 or whatever, and just continued on the path when he was doing session stuff. And like, he, he would be a mountain, he's a Mount Rushmore player. Like the only reason he got sidetracked because he wanted to be a pop star for 30 years. But like if Genesis and then into some of that stuff he did with like Tears for Fears, it, if that was what he just continued to do, we'd be talking about him like we talk about Vinny or anybody else. Like he's unreal player. And just the taste and musicality and understanding of songs, like- Clearly, he's always been a writer because he's always had that. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. But at the same time, I think part of the reason we have the Phil Collins catalog yes. yep. is because he was a solo artist. And he was people called him to do the sound. Yep. He, he wouldn't have made, been able to make that call as a, as a session guy, right? Totally. He, he wouldn't have been like, hey, we got to get my gated reverb. I'm, I'm bringing my, you know, my four rack toms, like my concert toms. Like, it's true. You know, yeah, he and wouldn't be in a, in a co-producer's chair. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That would have been like, yeah, we're not doing that, dude. Sorry. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Although uh, it feels like to me at this point, if, if, if you call Vinny, he's going to do what he's going to do. <laughs> Whether, uh, or, or always. Yeah. We're always, like, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man. Um, well, yeah, I, like I said, I don't, I think you just, you, <laughs> there's so many gems in here. I think it's awesome. I, I, we've covered so much ground in like not even an, or just about an hour or whatever. You know what I mean? Man, in, any excuse to talk shop, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I will say that, uh, I, I definitely find inspiration in your Instagram posts, man. And like just your, oh, 
you're constant constant experimenting. I, I, I feel like it pushes me, which is awesome. Oh, cool. So yeah. Thank you for that, you know. I, yeah, I, you know, we have, I've just heard, I've heard over the years, I've had, I've heard so many good results, great results from bad gear, quote unquote, and so many terrible results from the best gear that like, I, I think experimentation is the whole thing. I mean, you, you have dudes like Kevin Parker from Tame Impala making records on who knows, you know, Digio 2 or whatever. Right. And it sounds cool as hell, you know? So like, there's something to be said for just the experimentation gets you away from some of your perceived limitations on your gear. Cause you can find stuff. It's not the, the most fun things to do are find things gear is not supposed to do. I mean, the limitation thing to me is huge. And if I, if I could actually get away with, I, I mean, I, I sound like a broken record sometimes if I could get away with less mics more and just get more crazy with them, I would. You know, I have to, I apparently have to write solo records so I can just do that. <laughs> but, um, you know what I mean? It's like, to yeah. me, that's when I find the coolest things. Well, and that's, that's why I like working off a setup where it's like, you know, my, my kick snare Tom's overheads never change. I rarely even do anything to them. I just like capture them, whatever. And then I'll have my rooms and like a mono mic or two, you know, like whatever. And those are my effect mics and those are mine. I get to do anything I feel like with them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of the best of all worlds where you're never going to put people in a corner. Any mix engineer can make kick snare Tom's overheads into anything they need it to be. Right. And then I'm also give, giving them the flavor of this, like, hey, this is kind of a production choice, but maybe this is cool. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, I think that, like, that's where having some some that are for them and some that are for you is, is kind of nice, you know. That's, a, that's an interesting point. And I'll contradict you. <laughs> if, if you. If you – or if you don't, if you can't put up room mics, I'm sorry, Tom mics. Yeah. Then how do you capture that? You know what I mean? Like, I'm yeah. not, not specifically asking you, actually, you know, right. Obviously, but totally, yeah, yeah. like if you, if you're like, man, I can't, I don't have the input for Tom mics. What can I do to get a super rad drum sound where they're present? Where yeah. I have some manipulation, but I'm also need to capture the other things in this. You know what I mean? Like it's, and when you're forced into that box, which is rare, you know, mm-hmm. you're forced into that box. I think the results, because you have to dig so deep, can be just mm-hmm. awesome, you know. Totally. Well, and it just it puts the onus on you as a player, because I think that so much of these discussions turn into because we all feel like, oh, we're playing, blah, blah, blah. We're good. Now let's talk about engineering, which we haven't all been doing since we were eight or 10 or 12, whenever we picked up drums. Right. Mm-hmm. So, like, for me, it's like. I'm an okay engineer. I'm pretty confident as a player in most circumstances I've ever been in. And the, the engineering is the thing that keeps me up at night. Um, so much of that minimal mic stuff, it just, it puts the onus on you as a player to be more balanced. Like, like a Clyde Stubblefield. So much of that is like one mic vaguely pointed at the drums and it sounds like a whole drum kit because he sounds like he's playing a whole drum kit, you know? So I think that so much of that, like, man, I'm limited by my gear or that I only have four channels or eight channels or two channels. If I had 32, I would just put up 32 microphones that if you're not playing balanced, it doesn't matter. Right. Like you're, if your room mic is just like all crash symbol, well, you know, like, what are we going to do with that? You know, it, yeah. I think that like the minimal mic stuff can be, you know, in a lot of ways, like way cooler because it's so much about the performance now. Right. Like right. the playing, there's nowhere to hide. There's nothing you can do to fake it or fix it. It just kind of is what it is. And if you can capture it, then it's going to be cooler than 
some you know 16 channel super high fidelity sounding thing you know yeah yeah i mean it's something to be said it's just a method in general like if if you're a recording drummer somewhere and you're like man i'm just not making the money to like expand more well mm -hmm. that's a perfect opportunity to continue working on your playing yeah totally you know if like if you can't have the tom mics well then maybe you just learned how to play where when you do a fill you're hitting your toms harder and then you get back to your groove or whatever you know yeah you just you got to get them to, so that they're in the overheads more you got to get them out in front for sure and it just becomes a style thing you know yeah and it and it totally works the guy that plays his toms too loud you know that could you know, maybe that's a cool thing you know <laughs> if there's anything you play too loud that's probably the safest thing <laughs> Good. gonna be the least problem in mix <laughs> closing statement that was it i love it uh dude thank you for uh taking the time I, oh, anytime this if anybody uh could see the back and forth texting of like me say like hey dude will you talk and then me canceling on you like 19 times i had stuff yeah, come up, man. yeah so no, but... I'm, I'm around i i just uh most days are just coming here and fool around for six eight hours and that's yeah yeah. So I'm I'm down most times. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Oh, any any time, man.